How do you help someone who is accident-prone? That was the challenge facing Earl Dixon on a daily basis. His wife, Josephine Knight Dixon, kept burning herself and getting small cuts as she worked in her new kitchen. The options to treat these cuts and burns in 1920 were frustrating. A bulky bandage could be applied, but on something like a finger, it became an even bigger nuisance than the wound itself. Homemade remedies amounted to tearing pieces of fabric and clumsily applying them to prevent bleeding. But getting them to stay was an even bigger challenge. Earl worked at Johnson & Johnson at the time, which produced sterile surgical products during World War I. To help his wife at home, he combined two Johnson & Johnson products together, gauze and adhesive tape. Earl stretched out a long piece of adhesive tape and put a strip of gauze across the center of it. He then put a light fabric on top of it to keep the tape from sticking to itself and rolled it up. Whenever Josephine cut herself, she would unroll a segment of it and cut a strip from the roll, applying the sticky bandage to her wound. It was a quick and easy fix, helped to prevent infection, and helped Earl and his wife with minor injuries at home. But with his creation, Earl felt he was onto something much larger than he initially imagined. He presented it to his boss at Johnson & Johnson, and the idea made its way to the company's president, James Wood Johnson, who recognized its potential. The company acquired a patent and produced the first Band-Aid brand adhesive bandages. Since then, over 100 billion Band-Aids have been sold worldwide. Earl Dixon took a simple idea, an adhesive gauze, and turned it into a household staple that has lasted for more than 100 years. In the toy world, Kathy Vaness changed the industry of action figures, dolls, and plush creations as a soft goods designer. She played an important role in producing some of the most iconic toys of the past four decades, on lines like Strawberry Shortcake, Disney, Care Bears, and one nearest to all of us, Star Wars. This is Kathy's story in her own words. This is what it was like to work at Kenner and on Star Wars toys in the 1970s and 1980s. This is a conversation with a true innovator and a true toy legend. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Kathy Vaness is a problem solver. That's how she describes herself, 
and there truly isn't a more fitting description for her role during her 50-year career in the toy industry. She entered the toy world with a fine arts background, before quickly becoming an asset in the creation of girls-focused toys and soft goods items. The term soft goods refers to various aspects of toys, basically items like capes and cloaks for action figures, clothing accessories and hair for dolls, and plush and stuffed toys. Kathy worked at many different toy companies, beginning with Knickerbocker Toys in 1973. After Knickerbocker, she became the senior manager of soft goods and doll design at Kenner, where she spent two decades working on lines like Rose Petal Place and Star Wars. From there, she spent time building the girls' toy division for major companies like Tyco, Cap Toys, Toy Biz, and Playmates Toys. And beyond helping each business to expand its toy offerings in a meaningful way, Kathy's designs are still used today and define many of the toys created over the past half century. She has a wildly imaginative mind, and she was able to translate ideas that were simple and complex into various playmates, action figures, dolls, and plush items for children with similar imaginations. Chances are, you probably own something Kathy helped create. And if you're a Star Wars fan and grew up with the Kenner toys, you'll find Kathy's stories from her time on the line fascinating and inspiring. To name just a few, Kathy made her mark on the 12-inch dolls, the 3 and 3 quarter inch action figures, the talking Yoda, and the lovable Ewoks. Over our conversations, Kathy shared some of her stories with me, and I asked her to share them with you today. She has such a vibrant soul, a sharp memory, and a true love for toys, and her work. And in addition to being a kind and wonderful person, she's also someone to admire, both in her approach in dealing with others and in innovating fearlessly. I'm so excited to have you join Kathy and me for a conversation about her career and the impact she made on the toy industry. Don't forget to grab your favorite beverage. I'm going to go with raspberry tea and cranberry honey for this one. And pull up a seat next to me. I'll go get Kathy now. Kathy, I don't get to say this enough to many people, but I want to thank you so much for playing a part in my childhood and in my sister's childhood, in making the toys that the two of us played with growing up, and they're now the toys that I collect as an adult. It is a pleasure to speak with you today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Excellent. You and I had spoken recently, and you had shared details of your career and your life, and it was really impressive and inspiring. How did you get into the toy industry? Well, that's very interesting. Way back in those days, there was not really a career of toy people that was popular. Everybody got into the industry and the design area sort of haphazardly. And in my particular case, I had a fine arts business in Flemington and a girl in the neighborhood um, went for 
an interview, a job interview, thinking it was Scott Paper Towel Design, and it turned out to be a toy company, and she got the job. And everybody that was in the office that he was gathering together for his design staff came from all walks of life. One was a secretary in the office that kind of sewed crafts and things. He put her in the design department. He put this girl, Jane, that I knew in the design department. And she came by and said, gee, we need somebody who can draw. Why don't you come by? And that's how I got in. And how long have you been in the toy industry? Since the early 1970s. So almost 50 years. That's incredible. And and you first started, though, with Knickerbocker Toy Company. Yes, I did. My very first toy on the market was the Mickey Mouse Puzzle Blocks and the Raggedy Ann Dollhouse. Were you working in soft goods at the time? No, no. Actually, my background is fine arts and very serious fine arts. And that was a pretty good basis for understanding how to introduce that into all commercial work or whatever. It gave you quite an edge. And I actually started in the toy business as what you would consider today an industrial designer, which is the one who draws the plastic toys. I didn't sew. I could sew at home, but not professionally. And so I got, I actually got introduced to Knickerbocker and finally took a job there as an industrial designer. I did all their plastic toys, their dolls, their, and I gradually got into the soft goods area. So we were considered just toy designers. So you were drawing the concepts for yes. the, the toys, and then they were being put into production. Correct. I would do the initial idea, draw it up, put it in color, get it approved, and then work with the engineers that everything was on the outside of the company. They were all contractors and got um, models done. And then we went into production from there. I did the control drawings for the engineers. What was a day at Knickerbocker like? A day at Knickerbocker was a lot of fun. They, in those days, none of us really had any, um, training and sorts, but we were all sort of like in those days, we're all in t-shirts and jeans and we all enjoyed each other with a lot of laughter, a lot of fun, a lot of uh, ideas going around. It was very casual and very creative. And we, um, we were all put in the back of the factory in the room and we were locked in the room all day. So we all had a great time and we were very productive. And we went from, I think once we got the Holly Hobby license, we went from 1 million to 99 million in a year and a half. And what year was that? What year was that? You know, that's a good question. (laughs) Had to have been, uh, 70, 1977, maybe, yeah, around in 76, 77, around there, because it was right before I, that's the reason I went to Kenner, was because of that success. But but Knickerbocker, we were all uh, great friends and great teamwork, and it was a lot of fun, and we all did different things. I learned how to sew, learned about production, and we just did everything. And that's how you got your hands. I guess we did, we, we were hands on everything from initial concepts through samples through, I actually 
did the labels for the plastic toys. We did Disney art. I became an approved Disney artist. We did everything at that place. It was fun. It sounds like it was a masterclass for you in, in learning how a toy was produced. Yes, we learned. I learned a whole lot. We used to have to get our doll heads rooted out in Long Island City. We would go from New Jersey all the way out to Long Island City, sit in a room, wait for it to come back. And as we, being that the president of the company was our age, so it was really a young, because I was young in the 70s, it was really a young group. And he was unreasonable, which made us all band together more. And he would say, "Okay, I want 25 new concepts in two weeks. And I would we would sit there and look at each other. And then we'd have to think of the craziest things we could ever come up with. And he would pick one. And that's the one we would probably manufacture. And so the assignment was sort of like original ideas Revise the line, spring line, you know, his the stuffed toys, because Knickerbocker was a stuffed toy company initially. And I was brought in to bring in the plastic toys, which was what his idea was. And the third idea was knockoffs because we didn't do television. So he would send us out to the stores and say, look around, look what you can see. See what we can do. We can do with that. So it's crazy. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun. So we learned a lot, though. We did. Did you find it to be stressful at times or was it that the overall excitement of not knowing what you were going to be doing day to day? It was always fun. I would not say Knickerbocker was ever stressful. It was not a stressful job. No, that's wonderful. It was a lot of problem solving on the product line. The people that we all worked together, we had such a great time together. So it was really fun. So I, I would say the stressful part was the idea that we didn't make any money. We could hardly live. Uh, at Christmas time, he would say, oh, we're going to get a bonus. And we'd go in there and he'd flip through the catalog and say, oh, you worked on this. Oh, you worked on that. Didn't so-and-so help you with that one? And at the end, he would say, and what does your husband make? What did he get for a bonus this year? And all of those were factors on. And of course, we got next to nothing. And so it got to be, um, he became our common I guess, common stress. So we would always be, uh, we're sort of like a little rebellious group of sorts. Like a, like a rebel cell, like like a group of people uh, coming yeah. together. And yeah, okay. So you worked at Knickerbocker between 1973 and 1979. Was there a certain point in which you felt like you leveled up that it really changed for you what you felt you could do? You know, that's a funny, that's funny. You said that the thing that comes to mind was we were working, we would work on all aspects, working with people. Um, I can't remember his last name, Joe, the one who invented the Cupid doll. That's how far back it goes, was a friend of the whites who owned Knickerbocker. Um, you would work with all kinds of interesting people. And sometimes inventors would send in a thing. And this, uh, this girl in California sent in a, flat doll that you snap on the clothing to and they gave it to me because it was plastic so I designed it I drew it up from the you know they send in sort of a prototype and a concept type thing and you have to make it into something saleable and I remember being at home and coming up with the name Dolly Pops and it was so appropriate and I was so excited about, I don't know where the idea came from in my head, 
But I thought, oh, we could license the, the song from way back, My Boy Lollipop, and was so excited about that. And that's when I think I realized if you could think of it, you could make it happen. And it was starting to really come together from, I'm going to say that point on, that it's something I really enjoyed doing. It's funny. What you just said was similar to a popular quote at Disney, where if you could dream it, you can do it, which seems to be the direction or the mantra that you took with your own career. Yes. And then at Knickerbocker, we didn't have any facilities in-house, and we had to go on the outside and be subjected to their knowledge. And we wanted to push the envelope because we thought of new things. And they said, no, 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 we can't do that. And I think I mentioned to you about the doll rooting. I would go there and he'd say, this is the only way it can be done. And I said, no, I believe it can be done differently and we could change it and it would be better. And I could never get him to do it. So when I, when I interviewed at Kenner, walking through the department, which was, I think, three offices. And I saw on the on the floor in one of the offices where the ladies were sewing, I saw a rooting machine and I inquired about that. And I said, oh, no, we do the head rooting here. That was a big factor for me coming to Kenner is that anything I could think of, I actually could have materialized inside the company. It was a big draw for me. How did you make the jump from Knickerbocker to Kenner Products then at the end of the decade? Well, the, it started out probably naively, and that is that Bernie Loomis knew that we did such success with Holly Hobby. We were doing six-inch vinyl dolls for every, every doll line we had, from Raggedy Ann to Moppets, all of them. And Holly Hobby was our biggest. And I had what I didn't realize at the time was... <clears throat> We had worked so closely with American Greetings and they had shown us the strawberry shortcake line. And we said at Knickerbocker, nah. And I said, oh, please, Rod, not, not, not one more six-inch vinyl doll. And so we passed on it. And when I went to Kenner, that's really why Bernie was calling us in the back room where we worked. And he wanted me or Karen, this other girl who did Holly Hobby, and he wanted us to interview out at Kenner. So I went, she said, she doesn't know where Cincinnati is. She's not going. She wasn't interested at all. And I said, well, I should be, and I'm going to go see what that is. So I did. And that's how I actually went, went there is I, I took, took them up on the uh, interview offer and figured I had two children and needed college money. And as long as they were doubling what Rod was giving us, maybe I should consider it. So was I it, did. And I went. <laughs> <laughs> was it nerve wracking for you at all oh, to take was. that step? Yes, it was. It was. I don't know where Cincinnati, Ohio was. And it was Drew Holland that called me at seven o'clock one morning and said, well, are you going to come? Are you going to take the job? And I said, yes. And I interviewed for both prelim and for engineering. And it was kind of uh, worrisome because I thought if I went into the engineering department, I wouldn't be able to do design work, that it would be too technical. But as a result of, uh, and if I went to the preliminary department, they really did not do girls' toys or girls' prelim. 
it was mostly it was a boys company for the most part and and probably crafts or they called it make and play you know that play doh that kind of thing but they really weren't known for girls toys so i didn't want to go to the preliminary department because they didn't seem to have the same I guess, opportunity for me to make things happen. So I chose the engineering department, which was Drew Holland. So I said, yes, I'm coming. And that's that's how I got there. What was your first month or so like there? Did you notice a difference between Kenner and Knickerbocker? Well, the difference was interesting for me because I thought that the attitude of all toy designers was inclusive. And I think that what I noticed in the first month that the people that worked there were kind of exclusive and they were more independent of each other. And there wasn't the team effort that I had experienced. And I don't mean that there wasn't a team effort there. There was, but it wasn't as personal as what I was used to at Knickerbocker. We were all good friends. We're still good friends today. We're like family. And at Kenner, it was very corporate very uh, business-like. We would have a lot of paperwork and a lot of um, rules and different things that I was really surprised on how structured it was for being a design area or, I guess, a creative. And I thought it was, wow, this is like a business. It's like a company. You have to understand where I was working before. (laughs) It's like a free-for-all, so it's a little different. It's it's very interesting to hear your take on it. I think most people imagine Kenner to be more casual and kind of looser as a company. Um, from your perspective, though, it sounds like Kenner was more corporate, which is kind of surprising. Well, yes, we had a dress code. We had uh, I had to do what they called man loading, which was to tell of management, how many hours it would take each person to do their job on the projects that they were working on. I did budgets. I did all that kind of very, I thought it was very corporate, but we did have, we did have fun. I mean, that's not, you can't help it. And there's a lot of um, silliness around the toy products, of course, because just for the nature of what they are, they lend, and you're an adult, so when you have somebody that's smiling everywhere in your office at you, you can't help but get a little crazy. Sure. <laughs> I know you had mentioned you had an innovative idea to improve a doll's hairline, but couldn't do so while you were at Knickerbocker. But at Kenner, it was a different story. Oh, it was. It, Kenner was so exciting in that respect and the fact that it was almost expected for people to be innovative. And there were so many brilliant people that worked there. And I took that opportunity to put into, oh, actually to materialize some of the ideas that I had had previous to getting there so that they could actually make it to the marketplace. And one of the big ones was the periphery on the hair rooting. And if you're familiar, I don't know if you're familiar with doll rooting, but it's a circular pattern and it's like a sewing of hair into the vinyl head and it goes in a circle and that's the around above the ears to the back of the head. And they put it on a, on like a shoe machine, which is a straight needle head goes over it and the hair gets sewn through it. 
And I thought that looked really funny. It always looked like they had a wig on because the hair was so, you know, like above their ears. So I wanted to bring the hair, the periphery line down in front of the ear and then back over the ear because you had to have a, a slight tolerance between the ear and the periphery line because it was a bump there. The ear made a bump and you had to leave some space so the needle could get through. So I thought, well, we'll put a little a little hair in front of the ear and go back around the head. And they said, no, no, you can't do that. But when I got more involved in it, I found out that how they, the reason that they were saying that is because of timing and um, cost. So what I did with my my people in uh, Kenner, namely Bev, who could work the machine, she she would sit there, we would get ahead, I would get my stopwatch and I'd say, okay, start. And then we figured out when did the, how many starts and stops there were in the rooting and how much weight we could put on the head. And therefore we made a successful comparison to the regular hair, hair rooting and we were able to do it. So the first head that we ever put it on was the Leia, Princess Leia, in the hairstyle that was the second, not the first year, not the donuts, the next year. And I thought that it went into production. Somebody had to tell me, no, no, it never did. And I think now that I think back, I think there were only two heads rooted with that hairstyle. And it was that periphery line and it was beautiful. And that was the very first doll ever rooted that way in history. And then we decided it was so good and they were willing in production to do it. We wound up putting it on Darcy or fashion doll at Kenner. And I'm going to tell you today, and it's 2022. Since then, every doll, I almost, almost every doll I've seen on the market has that periphery line. It revolutionized the entire hair rooting community. And that's and just, incredible. It is because it, the hair rooting was such a creative place. We did different lengths of hair, different color combinations, different all kinds of things that opened the door for designers to do with their hair. We were always interested in getting ahead of Mattel. That was our big competitor. <laughs> so how long did it take to get the hair rooting? I don't know. Well, probably about a half hour. Oh, okay. I thought it was. I thought it was a no, much longer no. process. Oh but still, no! I mean, no. I thought of it for years ago, and I can, and you think about it. Well, if you're driving in the car, if you're wherever you are, you're always thinking about how you would do it. And then I'd say, why don't they want to do it? And then they'd have to tell me why they don't want to do it. And then I would think about that. And so it's in a you know it's sort of a one foot in front of the other. And when I saw the the rooting machine. I said, let's try it. And by then I had a lot of information on production hair rooting. And so I knew how to get around everything. So that's why it took no hardly any time to actually make it happen. Mm -hmm. As a Star Wars fan and collector, it's nice to hear these stories about what it was like to work on the Kenner line. Could you share a little more about the creative process and, and your experience in working on the Star Wars toys? Well, one of them that I would say that is interesting or maybe just from a designer standpoint was the Ewoks. And years ago when I was at Knickerbocker, I had learned how to sew production from the other people that were there. And I, my, one of my assignments was the bad news bears. And they were two 
teddy bears and we were supposed to make them from the movie. So I drew the picture and then I had to sew them three dimensionally. So I don't know. I didn't have a lot of experience in production. So what I did is I cut a hole in his face in the pattern and I inserted his muzzle in a hole and everybody went crazy at Knickerbocker laughing and saying, that's insane. Nobody will ever do that in production. That's crazy. All the pattern pieces have to line up. They have to be matched up and with notches and all this stuff. You can't, you have to use darts and you have to do this. And I said, no, no, I like the way that round ball of a muzzle looks. I want to put it in the hole. And so they all laughed and it wound up doable. I put notches where they, where it would work. And the little bad news bear had this big fat face and it was, I liked it. Well, everybody said it can't be done in production and it did get done in production. And it was sort of like what a term in sewing called easing, which means it's a little bigger, you know, it's a little uh, bigger than the whole, the pattern piece you're trying to fit in. Well, this was hardly, but it, it was a little bit. So when we did the Ewoks and we we spent a lot of time on the Ewoks and by now Star Wars was pretty popular. So everybody wanted to be involved in what it looked like and what it was. So I actually left Cincinnati, came to New Jersey and worked with uh, an old friend of mine at Knickerbocker. And her and I worked on the Ewok, as you see it today. And his cheeks are done with the same hole in his face that the bed news bears have. But that was a probably interesting in the sense that the Ewoks are made like no other stuffed toy. And why is that? Because everybody, for the most part, is done, I would say, um, I'm trying to think of the word. Most of the toys are done in a more... uh, more conventional way. You know, there's certain ways that you make a muzzle. There's certain ways that you make a curve. And the Ewok was, um, it was ironic that Jane was the one who said, let's put the hole in the face because she's one of the ones who told me way back at Knickerbocker, it can't be done. So obviously she changed her mind and it can be done. <laughs> and it does, and I think they do it, do it today. But if you, you would use seams, you would use more seams. That's more conventional and it's faster and easier in production for them to understand. So when you don't do um, more conventional pattern drafting, you have to be ready to explain it and make sure you're following it all the way through production that it can be done in a fast and, pretty consistent way that was another innovative thing that the star wars um actually was a part of so how were the ewoks received at the company oh the ewoks the ewoks came in this i think it was the second movie and so naturally they would come to my area and say, well, you know, stuffed toy. And I got to go to California to see the actual Ewoks and see what they look like and how they walked around and all that stuff. So that was really very interesting. We, it was a lengthy, lengthy process because we, um, had to keep bringing it to the, sending it out to California to get approved. 
So finally, everybody got real excited about them. And I took them out uh, because each marketing person that would bring it out there would come back with vague corrections, like make it a little bit better, make him a little bit taller, make him a little bit something. And I never could figure out what a little bit is because each person that told me was a different size person. <laughs> so if you're five foot four and a little bit and a little stout, a little bit is a little more than somebody five foot 11 that thin. So it got to be, we couldn't get the final, final approval. And, and so Dave says, you know, why don't you just go out there with your Ewok? So I went out with Kathy Kavanaugh and Howard Bollinger and the three of us went to uh, Lucasfilm and George Lucas came and he got, and he looked at the Ewok and he said, wow, this is really friendly. He would say these words, like all the things that a toy is. And he actually said to Sid, who was one of the other people in his group, that if he had seen the Ewok toy prior to the movie, he would have had the costumes done to look more friendly like the toy, which probably to this day was a moment in time for somebody who was starstruck sitting in a chair, mute and stunned. And I said, oh, this is the greatest moment of my toy career that the licensing person who I had so much respect for liked it that much. So that was a moment and it became very popular at Kenner, the Ewok. And all of a sudden it was getting titled the next teddy bear. Well, sometimes, you know, you can get too much of a good thing. And I said, well, you know, everybody, it really isn't a teddy bear. Teddy bears are are for the masses, you know, whereas Ewoks are for Star Wars people. I don't know that you would just take it Ewok like you would to a teddy bear. So that was a little concerning for me because that the expectations of the sales was way high. And yet the marketing people were the boys toy group and they really didn't have a, a place to market it. Did they market it with the action figures? Should they market it with the baby toys? Should it have an end cap? They didn't really know what position and who they're, real consumers were going to be and how to really appeal to them to get the volume that they were expecting. I guess they felt it was like a Care Bear. It was going to take, have legs of its own, which we know the Care Bears also were marketed extensively. And therefore, I would say it. the Ewoks did, I thought, okay at retail for the the position that it was with the movie um, Items. I thought that the Ewoks did well, but they were disappointed that the sales weren't good. And as I told Steve, I said, well, you know, if you talk to the management today, they always say, well, the Ewoks would have done better if they looked better. So I'm just clearing that up. It's not about the way they look. They, they look like the movie guys. Absolutely. When you and I first spoke about this, you described your role as that of a translator, taking something from the real world or on screen, and then kind of finding that balance where it captures an essence, but at the same time, it's designed for a totally different medium. And for you to do that with the Ewoks and then to have George Lucas, the master, prefer your design to his own, 
I think that was a true and profound compliment. It was. And, you know, he might have been not even meaning it in a really deep and heavy way. But for somebody who does what I do and the fact that licensing was such a huge part of toys in the 80s and I got really good at it, really good at it. And so one of the things was being in engineering. I also had scheduling and cost. So when I would go see a, a licensing person like like Lucasfilm or Disney, it was my intention to get an approval. So the way you do that is to understand your licensing people. And they really have in their minds something that um, may not be realistic in a toy. They may, they may want, they want wow. their thing. They don't want yours. And sometimes from, let's say, let's not use Mickey Mouse, let's use a, a television, let's say, personality. They want to make sure that that's their biggest compliment in a toy. But what they have to understand is that we are simplifying who they are and we are going to make them kid friendly, not realistic. And so what you need to do is you have to make it complementary to your licensing person. You can't just make it funny for the ch child. You have to please the person that is giving you the license and saying, make me into a toy. So that's how. You, you know, some people approach it with uh, taking, not making that connection. You have to understand your licensing person, and then you have to understand your young consumer and that there's a road that you go down. But I know there was one time where they, they found out that you could actually sculpt somebody's head and then turn it into a three-dimensional head. And they used to use these calipers to, to set where the eyes are, these little, you know, things that held it still. And I'm, I'm not gonna mention names because they'll be upset, but there was a, a movie, and it was not Kenner, it was another, another company I was at. They made the, the, the star of the movie from this realistic, uh, sculpting thing. I forget the name of it. Something giant. I have to remember the name. And what happened was they did not take the head and refine it, you know, into a toy. And so they left the little holes in his eyes where they held it with the calipers and they smooth out his face. He wound up suing the company and saying that they made him look demented which I don't know, struck me really funny for many years <laughs> because I, it was true. I thought they did. I thought I agreed with him because they didn't go back and make it, you know, like you would simplify and make your toy and still make it look like him. But I would there like is a road you go down from one price to another. Yeah, I, I would liken it to animation. And you and I had, had talked about this earlier. When Snow White came out in the 1930s, Disney used a rotoscoping technique for the character of Snow White. And while she moved similarly to a human, when you compare her movements to those of the dwarves, which the animators used more of a, a squash and stretch technique uh, that really caricatured the movements to capture that essence of motion... 
it seemed to play better on screen. I like that the animators use their art to capture something that, you know, maybe live action couldn't. It's a sim- they simplify it, but Disney is probably the best at it ever because they add a sensualness to it, a, a volume to it, a softness to it, and it's extraordinarily appealing to people. They know how to resonate. They, they know who they're, they're talking. They, there's some things that, that go from generation to generation that don't change. I know everybody says, well, you're dated. There are some things that don't change from generation to generation that comes from the soul. It's in your soul. What you think is, what warms your heart, what makes you smile. You have to pay attention. Pay attention to people and how they feel and what they respond to, what makes them happy, what makes them smile. Isn't Kathy wonderful? I knew you'd love hearing her talk about her time at Kenner and about her career. But our time with Kathy isn't over just yet. Join me on the next episode for more with Kathy Vaness on Star Wars, Prototypes, and Production. <laughs>